law and self-defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Law of Self-Defense. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca. Now, yesterday I published a detailed legal analysis of the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt by Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd in response to a recent tsunami of requests to do so. And you can find that analysis linked, and that's to the text, video, and audio form in the text version of today's content. Now, because of the great public interest in this particular case, we are leaving that analysis available on an open access basis to the general public rather than restricting it to our law of self-defense members, as is our usual practice. We're primarily a membership service. We'll also be leaving today's content, this content, open access for similar reasons. So if you'd like to share either yesterday's analysis or today's content with others, then please feel free. Now, one of the events that's triggered these recent requests for this legal analysis of the Ashley Babbitt shooting is the publication on August 28th of an opinion piece by Professor Jonathan Turley in The Hill entitled, Justified Shooting or Fair Game, Shooter of Ashley Babbitt Makes Shocking Admission. That is linked in the text version of today's content, by the way. And apparently, Professor Turley wrote this in response to the television interview of Lieutenant Byrd aired earlier that day, August 28th. And you can also uh, view that television interview at the link included in the text version of today's content, or you can just search for it on YouTube. It's titled Extended Interview Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd Speaks Out. Now, I feel obliged to note up front that Professor Turley certainly qualifies as one of America's great legal minds. Although I've not had the pleasure of meeting Professor Turley in person, I have had the opportunity to read a variety of his legal commentary in different forums on different subjects and have invariably found that commentary to be well-informed and insightful. That said, Professor Turley's August 28th opinion piece on the Ashley Babbitt shooting falls far short of the stellar quality I'm accustomed to seeing in his work. Indeed, from the perspective of this small-town lawyer claiming some modest expertise in use of force law, Professor Turley's opinion piece seems wildly off the mark, especially coming from a notable legal expert, and can only be described as disappointing. First, there's the headline of the piece, quote, Justified Shooting or Fair Game, Shooter of Ashley Babbitt Makes Shocking Admission, close quote presumably referencing Lieutenant Byrd's television interview earlier that day. So, okay, fine. Let's take a look at this shocking admission. It must be noted, by the way, for those who may not know, that generally speaking, the author of any piece of journalism or opinion does not write their own headline. And Professor Turley almost certainly did not write this headline. That said, I've personally viewed the Byrd television interview with great care, and there is literally no shocking admission contained anywhere within it. Indeed, the entirety of Byrd's statements throughout are consistent with a justified use of force. So the headline itself is utter nonsense. But again, I hesitate to attribute the headline to Professor Turley for the reasons I've already stated. The body of the opinion piece can, however, be fairly attributed to Professor Turley, and I'm afraid it's chock full of irrelevancies and entirely fails utterly to touch upon any actual facet of use of force law 
relevant to determining whether Byrd's shooting of Babbitt was legally justified. For example, Turley writes, quote, What was breathtaking about Byrd's interview was that he confirmed the worst suspicions about the shooting and raised serious questions over the incident reviews by the Department of Justice and, most recently, the Capitol Police. What are these worst suspicions that were confirmed by Byrd's interview? Well, Professor Turley never says explicitly. I suppose we're just supposed to know these worst suspicions intuitively? If so, having watched every moment of the interview very closely, I can find nothing in Byrd's interview or his comments therein that might qualify as confirmed worst suspicions. Indeed, I can find nothing in the interview that's inconsistent with a justified use of force. As for raising serious questions about the Department of Justice and Capitol Police reports, I certainly concur that those reports were bizarre for reasons on several levels. But so what? The justification of Byrd's use of force is assessed on its own merits and the relevant facts and the law, not on reports written by administrative lawyers, meaning really very low-level political actors, months after the event. If Byrd's use of force was legally justified based on the legal merits, there's no later report in the world that changes that analysis absent new evidence, and none of these reports contain new evidence. And the converse is even more true. If one believes the use of force was not legally justified, well, then the months later reports are even more irrelevant. In short, they are irrelevant either way in the context of whether Lieutenant Byrd's use of force meets the legal requirements to be justified. I will note that these bizarre reports do, of course, have political implications, mostly negative. For one, they suggest that the administration itself lacked the legal expertise to confidently find Byrd's use of force justified, and so apparently engaged in a bunch of hand-waving to craft a narrative of justification they desperately wanted, which in turn creates the appearance of a whitewash and a cover-up. Nevertheless, the fact that politicians may have acted as politicians are prone to act does not somehow magically make Byrd's actual use of force unlawful if it otherwise meets the legal requirements to be justified on its own merits. Professor Turley then writes a paragraph about the virtues of Ashley Babbitt, and I fully concur with those virtues. Veteran, Trump supporter, all of that. But that said, all of these are entirely irrelevant to a legal analysis of whether Byrd's use of force was legally justified. What matters, legally speaking, is not who Babbitt actually was or what she was actually doing or for what actual motive, but rather Byrd's reasonable perceptions of the circumstances presented to him. Byrd need not even have been correct about his perceptions. The law does not require perfection. He need merely have made reasonable perceptions, even if mistaken. Further, Babbitt was a total stranger to Byrd, so there's nothing about Babbitt's character that could have played any role, whatever, in informing Byrd's use of force decision-making. Use of force law does not require or allow us to judge a person's conduct based on information they could not possibly have possessed at the time. Professor Turley does accurately note, quote, when protesters rushed to the House chamber, police barricaded the chamber's doors. Capitol police were on both sides with officers standing directly behind Babbitt. Babbitt and others began to force their way through and Babbitt started to climb through a broken window. That is when Byrd killed her, close quote. 
Perley writes that he had immediate concerns about the shooting of Babbitt and, quote, those concerns were heightened by the Department of Justice bizarre review and report, which stated the governing standards, but then seemed to brush them aside to clear bird, close quote. Well, Turley does not provide a link to the actual Department of Justice review and report, but does provide a link to a Department of Justice press statement referencing the review and report. And that link can also be found in the text version of today's content. And I certainly agree that this press statement qualifies as bizarre if it's intended as a use of force review, because it doesn't speak to use of force in any traditional sense as a justification for the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. Rather, it merely speaks to whether Lieutenant Byrd committed a particular and frankly rather obscure civil rights violation upon Babbitt and summarily concludes that he did not commit that civil rights violation. That, folks, is not a use of force review. It's theoretically possible that Byrd did not violate the civil rights statute in question and yet still committed a murder. A use of force review would speak to the possible murder charge, not merely to an obscure civil rights violation, and this Department of Justice press statement does nothing of the sort. For an actual example of what an actual use of force review based on use of force legal principles and actual evidence would look like, I refer you to my legal analysis of yesterday, which again is linked in the text version of today's content. Turley then writes, the Department of Justice statement notably does not say that the shooting was clearly justified, close quote. Well, that's true, but it's also irrelevant because clearly justified, whatever that means, is not the legal test for whether a use of force was legally justified. The burden is on the prosecution to disprove justification beyond any reasonable doubt. It's not required that a use of force be clearly justified in order to be lawful. It's merely required that there is at least a reasonable doubt that the use of force could have been justified. Turley then references one of the seminal U.S. Supreme Court decisions on police use of force, Graham v. Connor, and of course, that's linked in the text version of today's content as well. And he notes that the decision, quote, has emphasized that lethal force must be used only against someone who is an immediate threat to the safety of the officers or others and is actively resisting arrest or attempting to evade arrest by flight, close quote. Bizarrely, however, Turley in the next paragraph seems to suggest that an immediate threat to the safety of the officers or others can exist only in the context of the suspect being armed with a weapon, writing, quote, Under these standards, police officers should not shoot unarmed suspects or rioters without a clear threat to themselves or fellow officers. Well, of course, officers and anyone else should not shoot anyone who is not an unlawful, eminent, deadly force threat to an innocent person. Deadly force threat meaning a threat of either death or serious bodily injury. The justification for deadly defensive force requires that the danger being defended against is deadly in nature, as well as unlawful and imminent, in order for that defensive force to be legally justified. But that condition does not require that the person defended against possessed an artificial weapon. There are many ways in which a deadly force threat can be manifested and wielding a weapon is only one of those ways. A large male aggressor choking a slight female victim to death would clearly qualify as a deadly force attack, regardless of the absence of an artificial weapon, for example. Similarly, a mob attack in which a defender was facing a substantial disparity of numbers would also create a circumstance in which the defender was facing a danger of serious bodily injury, 
meaning it qualifies as a deadly force threat. In short, the disparity of numbers presented by an apparently violent mob are more than sufficient to represent a threat of death or serious bodily injury, even absent the presence of weapons. And that is the legal definition of deadly harm. The law doesn't care much about the specific nature of the deadly force threat being defended against. It merely cares whether the deadly force threat, again, a danger of death or serious bodily injury, existed, period, whether in the form of a weapon, disparity of numbers, or by any other means. The presence of a weapon may be dispositive on the question of the deadly nature of a threat, but the absence of a weapon is not if there are other circumstances from which a deadly force threat can nevertheless be reasonably perceived, such as a substantial disparity of numbers. Turley then remarkably commits the logical fallacy of contrasting Bird's shooting of Babbitt with an entirely unrelated police use of force case. Now, this kind of comparison and contrast may be a useful rhetorical tool in a law school classroom. Indeed, I'll attest, it is a useful rhetorical tool in a law school classroom. But it is entirely pointless in making an assessment of whether Bird's use of force upon Babbitt was legally justified in this specific instance. That analysis of Lieutenant Byrd's specific use of force must be made on its own merits. The fact that some other officer in some other unrelated case may have used force unlawfully is entirely irrelevant to whether Byrd's use of force was justified in this particular instance. Turley then writes, quote, Bird went public soon after the Capitol Police declared no further action will be taken in the case. He proceeded to demolish the two official reviews that cleared him, close quote. Well, this is pure nonsense. First, I see no demolishing of anything. Bird's statements in the television interview may have laid the foundation for a different legal justification than did the reports in question, but it's entirely possible that both distinct justifications are legally sound. The presentation of a second sound legal justification does not magically make an initial sound legal justification into something that has been demolished. Second, Byrd has no obligation to support any official reviews about his use of force. Whether his shooting of Babbitt was lawful is entirely independent of whatever some administrative lawyers may have written about the event months later. Lieutenant Byrd, like any of us, is privileged to have the lawfulness of his use of force evaluated on its own merits. No matter how bizarre and feckless those two official reviews might have been, and they appear to me to be extreme in both regards, that has nothing to do with the underlying legal merits of Byrd's use of force. Byrd's use of force doesn't magically shift from justified to unjustified because of some administrative report written long after the event. With respect to Byrd's firing the shot at Babbitt, Turley then oddly writes, quote, Bird could just as well have hit the officers behind Babbitt, who was shot while struggling to squeeze through the window. Close quote. Okay, well, perhaps so, but so what? Anytime an officer fires a shot, ever, there's always the possibility that the shot might miss or overpenetrate and strike an unintended target. In the context of legal analysis, however, there's nothing about use of force law that requires, as an element of justification, the utter lack of any danger to third parties. 
So this theoretical danger presented by Bird's shot is first always present in every police or self-defense shooting ever, and second, irrelevant to the question of whether firing the shot was legally justified, assuming, of course, the shot was fired in an otherwise non-negligent manner. In other words, Bird didn't have his eyes clenched shut when he fired, or it wasn't a warning shot. Then Turley oddly circles back to the unarmed facet of his narrative, writing, quote, of all the lines from Bird, this one stands out. I could not fully see her hands or what was in the backpack or what the intentions are. So Bird admitted he did not see a weapon or an immediate threat from Babbitt beyond her trying to enter through the window, close quote. Again, the actual legal question is whether Babbitt, working in apparent cooperative fashion with the mob behind her to violently breach the barricaded doorway, collectively presented a threat of death or serious bodily injury. This was not Lieutenant Byrd facing a lone, unarmed woman in the form of Ashley Babbitt. This was Lieutenant Byrd facing a mob violently breaching a barricaded doorway. A mob is readily capable of causing serious bodily injury to a lone defender, especially when violently breaching a barrier intended to protect that defender and others, and thus they represent a deadly force threat. Their possession of weapons is not required in order for the mob to present a threat of serious bodily injury. Disparity of numbers of a violent mob are sufficient to threaten serious bodily injury to Lieutenant Byrd and those behind him who were presumably unarmed, and to whom he had a duty of protection. Professor Turley then writes another irrelevancy, quote, No other officers facing similar threats shot anyone in any other part of the Capitol, even those who were attacked by rioters armed with clubs or other objects, close quote. Bird's use of force must be judged on its own merits. Perhaps an officer standing beside Lieutenant Bird in almost the same precise circumstances as the same barricaded doorway and facing the same mob violently breaching that doorway would have had some light to shed on the merits of Bird's use of force if they themselves decided not to shoot, but perhaps not even then. After all, a decision to not shoot may also be unreasonable under the circumstances and not required by law. In any case, there were no other officers standing beside Lieutenant Byrd facing the identical circumstances that Byrd was facing. That officers facing different threats in different locations of the building did not feel compelled to use deadly force does nothing to undermine the otherwise justifiable use of force by Byrd. Just as if had they decided to use deadly force elsewhere in the building, it would not have necessarily justified a use of deadly force by Byrd. Each instance must be judged on its own merits. Further, presumably officers being pummeled by actual weapons wielded by the mob, as described by Professor Turley, would have been legally justified in using deadly defensive force. The fact that they may have chosen to not use that legal privilege doesn't mean the privilege didn't exist for themselves and certainly doesn't mean it didn't exist for Lieutenant Byrd. Curly then even more bizarrely references other riots thousands of miles and months distant from the Capitol protest, specifically riots in Seattle and Portland, noting that, quote, under this standard, 
the idea that Byrd was justified. Hundreds of rioters could have been gunned down on January 6th, and officers in cities such as Seattle or Portland could have killed hundreds of violent protesters who tried to burn courthouses, took over city halls, or occupied police stations during last summer's widespread rioting. Close quote. First, that other officers in other circumstances chose to not use deadly force does not mean that their use of deadly force would not have been justified. Second, the use of deadly force would not be justified simply for taking over city halls or occupying police stations in the absence of imminent deadly force threats to innocent persons. Third, in many of the other riots mentioned by Turley, the police simply backed away and let the rioters possess the disputed terrain and property, thus avoiding a direct confrontation and threat to their personal safety and the necessity to use deadly force to protect their lives. Had these same officers been trapped behind barricaded doorways and threatened with eminent deadly force harm, they certainly would have been justified in the use of deadly defensive force. Further, the privilege to defend oneself against unlawful imminent deadly force harm does not diminish simply because their attackers may number in the dozens or scores or hundreds. The mob doesn't magically gain a legal privilege to kill or cause serious bodily injury to innocent persons when it exceeds a certain number of participants. If the mob presents an unlawful eminent threat of deadly force harm, it may be defended against with deadly defensive force, and that remains true whether the mob numbers 10 or 50 or hundreds of participants. Indeed, if anything, the larger the mob, the greater the threat, and the greater the justification for the defensive use of deadly force. Turley then continues, quote, According to the Department of Justice Bird Review, officers in those cities would not have been required to see a weapon in order to use lethal force in defending buildings, close quote. Again, first of all, no one is advocating that anyone use deadly force simply to defend a building in the absence of a threat to innocent life. And again, there's nothing about use of force law that requires a defender to be facing a weapon in order to be privileged to use deadly force in self-defense, the defender needs to be facing a deadly force threat, a threat readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury, and that threat may be in the form of a weapon or it may not involve a weapon at all. For example, the disparity of numbers of a violent mob would be sufficient to constitute a threat readily capable of causing serious bodily injury, which is the legal definition of deadly force. Turley then references Byrd's prior incident of leaving his service pistol in a bathroom, which is apparently true, but it's an event entirely irrelevant to whether his shooting of Babbitt was legally justified. And sadly, Professor Turley then rather shamefully offers some hearsay from anonymous sources claiming that Byrd, quote, told other officers that his rank as a lieutenant and his role as commander of the House Chamber section would protect him and that he expected to be treated differently. Really, Professor Turley, I'd expect better from such a prominent criminal law expert than character assassination by hearsay, utterly unsupported by evidence or named sources. Would similar unsourced characterizations against you or those you care about be equally palatable? In any case, even if those unsourced statements were made by Byrd after the fact, 
That still doesn't magically and retroactively change a use of force that's legally justified under the circumstances into one which is not. It's irrelevant to the use of force legal analysis. Turley nevertheless doubles down on this different treatment line, writing, quote, In the Babbitt shooting, the different treatment seems driven more by the identity of the person shot than the shooter. Babbitt is considered by many to be fair game because she was labeled an insurrectionist. To describe her shooting as unjustified would be to invite accusations of supporting sedition or insurrection. Thus, it is not enough to condemn her actions, as most of us have done. You must not question her killing. Close quote. Now, it certainly seems likely that the political actors defending Byrd would be defending his actions even if his use of force upon Babbitt entirely lacked legal merit. Those political actors likely don't care whether the shooting was justified or not. They're going to protect their team regardless, which means pushing a narrative of justification regardless of the legal merits. The fact that these political actors don't care whether there are legal merits to Byrd's use of force, however, does not then mean that Byrd's use of force actually lacks legal merit. The presence or absence of legal merit must be determined based on the actual facts and law of the particular case and not on the political gamesmanship of others. Then Turley once again seeks to shame Byrd by contrasting him with the other officers that day who did not use deadly force, writing, quote, As shown by every other officer that day, it is a job that is often defined by abstinence from, rather than application of, lethal force. It was the rest of the force who restrained from using lethal force despite being attacked that were the extraordinary embodiments of the principles governing their profession, close quote. Again, the fact that other officers in other parts of the building facing other threats may have made different use of force decisions has nothing to do with whether Byrd, from his own position facing his own apparent threats, was legally justified in shooting Ashley Babbitt. Byrd's use of force must be judged on its own legal merits. Indeed, it's quite possible that there were many other officers that day who would also have been legally justified in using deadly force. That they didn't end up using such force does not strip away the justification. Perhaps those other officers chose to take risks that the law does not require them to take. If so, that does not strip Lieutenant Byrd of his own legal justification. Now, before I wrap this up, I'll speculate that perhaps Professor Turley has a sound law and evidence-based argument for believing that Lieutenant Byrd's use of force upon Ashley Babbitt overwhelmingly fails to meet the legal requirements for justification because that's the actual legal standard, right? The claim of justification must be disproven beyond any reasonable doubt in order to lack legal validity. If Professor Turley has such a law and evidence-based argument, however, he fails to present any such argument in this op-ed piece or elsewhere that I've seen. His other writings on the subject appear, frankly, no more substantive than does this op-ed, which is a shame, as it would be great fun to engage such a tremendous legal intellect on the actual merits of this case rather than on mere rhetoric. In short, Professor Turley's August 28th op-ed following the Byrd interview was a disappointing opinion piece from an American legal expert whose work has almost always, in other instances, impressed me greatly. Hopefully, it's a transient shortfall. After all, nobody's perfect. 
Okay, folks, that's all I have for all of you today. Remember, if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill. My family is hard to kill. You also owe it to yourself to know the law to make sure you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain Attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.